I'm Roman Mars, host of 99% Invisible. I'm excited to be teaming up with Lexus GX and SiriusXM on some very special 99PI episodes. We're heading to some of the cities in the U.S. that have special meaning for me and exploring the ways that these cities marry form and function. To learn more about the Lexus GX and SiriusXM and Lexus vehicles, visit Lexus.com slash GX and SiriusXM.com slash Lexus trial. The all-new Lexus GX. Live up to it. Check out the 99% Invisible feed now and listen to these special episodes ebay motors is here for the ride elbow grease and a whole lot of love transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive entirely its own led headlights spoilers whatever you need ebay motors has it at affordable prices and with ebay guaranteed fit it's guaranteed to fit your ride every time keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com eligible items only exclusions apply I'm Alan Alda, and this is Clear and Vivid, conversations about connecting and communicating. If you're a regular listener to Clear and Vivid, or even an irregular one, you probably know I've got a thing for empathy. To me, it's, it's the indispensable foundation for good communication. But exactly what empathy is isn't always obvious, and it isn't always obvious that it's a good thing all the time either. So I thought we could look back over the 40-odd conversations we've had on Clear and Vivid so far and see where and how empathy plays a role in our lives. Empathy came up pretty dramatically in our very first podcast. It was a conversation with comedian Sarah Silverman. And I wanted to talk with her because of something she'd experienced that I thought was kind of amazing. A Twitter troll had called her a very rude word, but instead of ignoring him or firing back, instead of that, she realized that she could engage with him over Twitter, which led to her discovering that he needed help, and she actually helped arrange for him to get that help. What she showed was determination to engage with people she had nothing in common with, and in fact, that was the basis of her television show, I Love You, America. Exactly. Well, that, that's why I say I go, you know, I'd rather I'd rather bond about anything. Uh, uh, oh, you watch The Walking Dead. So do I. I, yeah. I hated Carol in season one. Now she's my everything, <laughs> you know, like and it, it's it, it. It doesn't matter what you're connecting over. But once you connect your porcupine needles, your defenses come down. Yeah. And then only then can you be open. And it's the same. And as much as I see it in other people, it's because I'm seeing myself in them. You know, there is there's some kind of ego involved. And maybe that part of it is even healthy that if we see ourselves in each other, I mean, then again, do you have to be able to see yourself in someone else to have empathy for them? I don't know. You know, well, I, I think hope not, the idea is you feel what they feel because you it, it seems like it's happening to you. Yeah. To me, this is the basis of what I mean when I talk about empathy, the ability to put yourself in someone else's shoes. It's not always easy to do. And that's why I brought up the subject in my conversation with the novelist Ann Patchett. I wanted to talk to you a little bit about empathy because it seems to me empathy is at the heart of communicating and relating. Mm -hmm. And you write these amazingly engaging novels which fit right into the theory that a lot of people have about empathy, that a good way to develop your empathy is to read novels. I agree with that. I say that all the time. 
because it really is putting you into someone else's skin in a way that nonfiction and history doesn't always do. Um, that I think with fiction, you have a more empathetic experience. It's almost like acting. You're going into the character. You're going into the character's life when you're reading or when you're writing. You kind of have to, I imagine, you kind of have to allow the reader to take on the perspective of the character. Uh, uh, otherwise, not only is empathy not going to happen, they're not going to be very interested in the story. Is that, is that, does that follow what you think? Well, the thing is, you, you want the reader to have empathy for many different characters, mm -hmm. maybe even all the characters. So they're not necessarily going to be getting into the point of view of all the characters. I don't know. I, there's an interesting way in which empathy is also a real weakness of mine, because I think that my biggest flaw as a writer is my inability to write villains. <laughs> because I, it's really true. Really? I, you why? Can, why is that? Uh, because I empathize. Because I have characters who I think are going to be the villains. And then as I'm writing them and really thinking about their life, I always wind up having a softness or a sympathy, no matter how bad they are. So like Sarah Silverman, Ann Patchett can empathize with people she may not like, even if they're only fictional. But I also talked with someone who has taken empathizing with bad people and made it his life's work after being one of those bad people himself, as a matter of fact. Christian Picciolini was once a neo-Nazi skinhead, a gang leader, and he did some very bad things. And then to earn money, he opened a record store selling hate music. But he needed to sell rap music and other kinds of music to make ends meet. And suddenly, people he'd never met in his gang life began coming into his store. These people were African-American, and they were gay, and uh, And Latinas. they were buying records from, from this guy who, on yeah. the other side of the counter with a skinhead? Yeah, with a, you know, Confederate flag t-shirt on or something, you know, really And did they offensive. look at you funny or start a conversation about it or what? Well, you know, they could have broken my windows. They could have punched me in the nose. But instead, they spoke to me, and they listened more than anything else, they listened to me because once I started to talk myself out of the bravado, mm. it's my, <laughs> I started to be real with them. And then over time, um, you know, it was really their compassion uh, mm. and the empathy for me that they showed me when I least deserved it. Uh, and frankly, they were the people that I least deserved it from. That really was the most powerful uh, transformative experience for me because you know, I always say that hatred is born of ignorance, fear is its father, and isolation is its mother. I hadn't, I'd been afraid of these people, and I'd hated them because I'd never met them. I'd never in my life had a meaningful conversation uh, or interaction with them. But when I did, I recognized that we were more similar than we were different, and that the differences were the beautiful things, the language, the food, mm -hmm. the music, mm -hmm. culture, all the things that I, you know, always loved and still love today. Maybe not for those eight years, but um, it was really their ability to, to filter out the noise of what I was saying and listen to the words. Christian Picciolini uses his ability to listen and relate. In other words, he uses his empathy to help gang members leave their hate behind. And another one of our guests does very much the same thing, Father Greg Boyle. He runs a program called Homeboy Industries in Los Angeles to help gang members, as he puts it, redirect their lives. 
He has a fascinating take on empathy. The word I use is awe. And, and so in the Acts of the Apostles, they talk about, and awe came upon everyone. So awe is a way of keeping, awe is the opposite of judgment. Mm. So awe keeps you tender and attentive, keeps you delighting in the person in front of you, keeps you aware of what the other has gone through. The opposite of that is, you know what this guy's problem is? You know, that, <laughs> yeah. And then, and that's kind of, again, the times in which we live. You know, it's either you're a, if you're a stranger to yourself, then you aren't friends with your own wound. And if you are not friends with your own brokenness, then you will be tempted to despise the wounded. And awe, and I, I use the word awe more than empathy or compassion because I think sometimes people, uh, because I think it's more than just understanding, you know, where this person's coming from. It's, it's, it's wow, what you've been asked to carry is really, you know, fills me with awe. You may have noticed that both Christian and Father Boyle used the word compassion when they were talking about empathy. This is where things get a little tricky for me, because in my mind, there's a clear difference between compassion or sympathy and empathy. And this difference was expressed most directly by another one of our guests who deals with bad people, the hostage negotiator, Chris Voss. As an example, you know, when uh, we had a trial in New York, a terrorism trial in, in civilian court, not military court. And the vast majority of our witnesses were Muslims, and they testified voluntarily. And we got them to testify voluntarily because I'd sit down with them and I'd say, you know, you guys feel like there's been a succession of United States government for the last governments for the last 200 years that have been anti-Islamic. And they'd go, yeah, mm. I never said that was true. <laughs> you, you expressed what they were feeling and thinking. Yeah, I never, I never agreed. I never disagreed. You know, I, I chose my words very carefully. I said, you guys feel this way. And that's just, that's just empathy. It's completely understanding with no judgment where the other side's coming from. Now, that sounds really innocuous. It's actually a lot harder to implement. Like when I first learned that on the suicide hotline way back when, they said, you know, you don't help people who are in quicksand by getting into the quicksand with them. That does them no good. In other words, you don't want to get swamped by your feeling that's similar to theirs. You don't want to suffer, yeah. suffer in the same way they're suffering, but you want to understand it. Right. Yeah, yeah. Sympathy doesn't actually help anybody. You know, sympathy makes us feel good. Oh, I feel bad for you. And then I go back to my daily life. Well, that doesn't help them. You know, it was, it's kind of self-satisfying. It doesn't help the other person to be sympathetic. Actions help people. Clarity helps other people. Empathy is a clear, clear vision of what, what they're seeing, how they feel about it, not agreeing with it. I got into a discussion about this difference between empathy and sympathy with the psychologist Paul Bloom. Paul has written a book called Against Empathy, and that title made me wonder. But it turns out that the problem with empathy is that it can be manipulated. Here's part of my conversation with Paul. I think uh, probably a large part of the objection or a large measure of what seems objectionable about what you say about empathy 
is because we haven't really defined what we mean by empathy. We don't all agree on the same definition. Uh, an awful lot of us think that empathy makes you compassionate, that it is, and, and some many people think it is just another form of compassion or another word for compassion, that if you have more empathy, you'll want to help people. Not, not necessarily, in my opinion. Yeah, um, I think you're exactly right. People use the term in all sorts of ways, and, and some of the responses to my book are, you moron, you're not talking about empathy, you're talking about sympathy, or you're talking about concern or identification. Ide empathy means this, and then people very confidently say what empathy means, and they all say something different, <laughs> but they're all very angry and very confident. I, I love it. You, you, got, you got threats? I got, I got to, so I, I got to say, for the most part, um, the response to my book has been great. And by great, I don't mean everybody's agreeing with me. I mean, people have engaged in ideas. Uh -huh. I've, I've gotten in academic scholarly discussions with, uh, with colleagues and friends. Um, I get letters from people who are, you know, so they say, oh, you're totally wrong about this. And we go back and forth, change my mind about a thing or two. And, um, and that's great. But when you have a book titled Against Empathy, you get some cranky people. And and what I find ironic is I get these emails saying, you know, you, you're a monster. You don't appreciate empathy as a source of goodness. I ought to come to your house and beat you up. And, you know, <laughs> and, and, I, and I'm thinking there's something really self-refuting about, about this sort of reaction. I don't see empathy as a solution to our problems. In fact, there's what I call dark empathy where – I do have a pretty good estimate of what you're feeling or what you're thinking, what you're going through, what your perspective is, and I use it against you. Yeah. Interrogators do that. Then the interrogator is not looking out for your best interests. He's looking for any sign he can to exploit what you're going through. Torturers, salespeople, uh, unprincipled salespeople, many politicians, just what do they want to hear? How can I appeal to that whether I'm going to accomplish it or not. We actually had a good example of what I call dark empathy in my talk with Christian Picciolini. Christian was originally recruited into the neo-Nazis by a man who had a really good understanding of what was going on in his head as he talked to him. He was using empathy against him. But I'd kind of lost my way. I felt very abandoned by my parents growing up. Um, so I started acting out, and at 14, one day I was standing in an alley smoking a joint. And uh, a car came roaring down the alley. It was a muscle car. And this guy gets out with a shaved head and boots. And he walks up to me. And then he grabbed the joint from my mouth. And he looked me in the eyes. And he said, that's what the communists and the Jews want you to do to keep you docile. You know, it didn't start out with telling me to hate people. There wasn't even hateful language at first. It was about, you know, after he pulled that joint from my mouth, Alan, he put his hand on my shoulder and he asked me what my name was. And I told him my name, Christian Picciolini. And he said... Ah, fine Italian name. Your ancestors are great warriors and thinkers and artists and, you know, have dominated civilization because he knew after just talking for a few minutes that that was the only thing that I knew anything about because I had grown up in this Italian bubble, you know, mm. in, in, in a part of Chicago where everybody in my neighborhood was from the same village in Italy. Mm. Uh, and uh, it was, you know, a bubble. And he knew that that's what was important to me. Um, and uh, he used that, that small little piece of my identity and boosted it up. And then he would switch it over and say, well, you know, there's somebody who wants to take that away from you. And that's when the hate started. One area where empathy plays an especially important positive role is in the relationship between doctor and patient. 
We hear more and more these days that doctors simply don't have the time to really understand their patients' problems beyond what the clinical tests reveal. The researcher Helen Reese had a really revelatory experience when she took part in an experiment where her interaction with a patient was closely monitored. Both Helen and the patient, who had been unsuccessfully trying to lose weight, were videoed, and they had their heart rate and skin conductance measured during a counseling session. Here's Helen. When we did this study, I recognized that there were times when her activity was far more intense than mine. So, you, And there were moments where you were not in sync. Yeah, where we were clearly not matching. And I went back and looked at the video to see what was happening during that time. And this person was making subtle movements that I had just, you know, not been paying attention to. Like what? Like flicking her hair or making a funny sort of chortle, like, <laughs> like that. That just, you know, it was like all these pieces of evidence were hiding in plain sight. So when she was making these gestures that you were missing, her tracings showed activity activity, and yours didn't because you weren't picking up on what you were seeing. Right. And so when I realized that there were these patterns to the, you know, the manifestations of anxiety that I had been missing in our continued work, I would say, what were you feeling just then? And and instead of this going right by, I would learn that she was feeling, you know, uncomfortable or maybe a little ashamed. And we got to a much deeper level. And the results were that that year, this person who had never lost one pound and only had gained actually lost 40 pounds that year. Well, and that really stemmed from your paying attention to what you were seeing. It was from tuning in at a much more perceptive level, which I believe is the first step in empathy. First, we have to open our eyes to what's there. We can't empathize with things we can't perceive. Is that when you began to realize you could train other doctors to do this? That's exactly right. When I saw the tracings and I realized how, not how, only how much I learned about this one relationship, but how transferable this you know, awakening could be for other physicians. I, I realized, like, doctors like science. And if you can actually show a tracing that shows when you're in sync and when you're not, that is way more powerful than, you know, saying when you see a patient, look them in the eye and shake hands. Yeah, yeah <laughs> right. Not just saying, trust me, this makes you more empathic. You can show them the tracings. Yes. Helen Reese has developed a training program for physicians to help them increase their empathy for their patients and therefore their effectiveness as doctors. We found 13 very excellent, rigorously done studies that showed that just by changing the level of trust and cooperation between the doctor and the patient, they could get significant improvement in some of our most vexing health problems in our country. And what effect, this has been a curious um, issue for me, what effect does that have? I mean, it's clear it has a good effect on the patient. Does it have an effect on the doctor as well? Does the doctor feel better if, if he or she's able to uh, show empathy? You know, um, that's a really great question. Most people choose medical professions because they want to help people. Like, they're people-oriented individuals. And there is a, an innate reward when we help people. It's it's like a reciprocal 
experience of feeling good. And it's been described as exquisite empathy, like that moment where what you say to a patient and where they recognize that they are really understood and being helped, that the benefit is both to the patient and to the physician. And I mean, this is true in any like two-person interaction. People love to help. And yeah. when you feel helpful, you want to help more. You're getting signals back from the other person. It's not It's not just a one-way communication. It's a, it's a real partnership that starts to be established, I imagine. Exactly, because our emotions are contagious and most feelings are mutual. Mm. So if, if you make another person feel understood and good and that you're, you know, an ally in their journey... That gratitude is just going to come back and fill you up. And that's the loop that I think has gotten broken by not paying attention to patient emotions. But it turns out there's a danger in the empathic bond between doctor and patient. It's a danger that the empathy skeptic Paul Bloom cites as one of the reasons his book is called Against Empathy. It's actually, it's, it's an insight that, that the Buddhists had a long time ago, Buddhist, Buddhist theologians would always ask the question, how could you be a good person? And what they say is, look, don't go around with what they call sentimental compassion, which is what I call empathy. Mm. Don't feel the suffering of others because it will burn you out. They talked about burnout centuries before somebody in the 70s made up that term. Um, it will exhaust you. Uh, I, got, I got emails. When I started writing about empathy, I got email from somebody who, uh, who worked at, uh, at, in, in the 9-11, the, 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 the towers, and she couldn't do it. She spent a few days and it just killed her. She just felt too much anxiety, too much pain for the suffering of people. And so she wrote me saying, you know, I, I now kind of understand based on what you're saying what's, what's up here, which is that I, it's not that I, I care, didn't care or didn't, cared in the wrong way. It's that I felt the pain too much. Mm. A lot of studies show that if you feel the pain of those around you, a lot, you'll withdraw, you'll develop physical symptoms, you'll become miserable, and maybe worst of all, you'll start to focus on yourself. And that happens with doctors now. Almost half of the of physicians are facing burnout where they're emotionally exhausted. They don't have a feeling of accomplishment. They're withdrawing from empathic uh, care. And they tend to make more mistakes. The, the errors are born of that disengagement. This was a topic I also raised with Helen Reese. You know, Alan, that's a very important point. And I think it's important for everyone to understand that empathy has both cognitive thinking components and feeling or affect emotional components. Right. And some people are out there saying, let's get rid of emotional empathy and just use cognitive because people will get too burdened by other people's emotions. I think that's a real mistake. I, I think that what we really need is self-regulation skills so that we can manage our own emotions. But if we try to wipe emotions out of a patient-doctor relationship, you're, I mean, you might as well be talking to a robot so some degree of emotional connection, I think, is absolutely necessary. This was a point that came up during an otherwise completely unrelated conversation that I had with the social psychologist Sherry Turkle. We were talking about a study that was done since the introduction of smartphones, and it showed a 40% decline in the standard paper and pencil test of empathy. Sherry told a heartbreaking story about one of the people she interviewed. Well, I was I was talking to people about sort of how, you know, the the change in technology had affected their lives, and 
one one guy said, you know, I, I think you're right. I I have these two daughters and and one was in the pre-iPhone years. And uh, I used to love giving her a bath. She used to have these little toys, her little guys in the bath, and used to sit, and we used to tell stories, and bath time was a time for conversation. Mm -hmm. And now I have a two-year-old, and I give her a bath, too. That's like my job in the distribution of labor in the house. And I put her in the bath, and I make sure she's safe, and I put down the seat on the toilet, and I take out my iPhone, and I just do my email while she takes her bath. This is, it takes the breath out of me to hear that, to have a kid, and, a little kid that you can get a world of pleasure from, right. and you take out your iPhone. But, Did you get any indication he saw his well, behavior he absolutely, differently? Well, he absolutely. He said, you know, I think you're right. You know, he's oh. like, and, But it was interesting. He said the damage is to me and my relationship with her. Yeah. It's not just what I'm doing to her. It's 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 Both what I'm missing because I yeah. remember I I remember that this that those hours we spend together with the with the daughter before the iPhone really are the basis of our relationship. The danger the smartphone poses to good old-fashioned face-to-face relationships is also one of the 10 arguments for deleting your social media accounts right now. To quote the title of the book by internet pioneer Jaron Lanier. I was interested to see in your book that you feel that these platforms that we're talking about break down the ability, they inhibit the ability of people to have empathy for one another. Am I right about that? Yeah, I do make that claim. What? How does it happen? Well, the problem is when everybody is being given different experience feeds, and those feeds are calculated to certain ends, which are to manipulate them, then people just, it follows um, by definition that people will have less common experiences with each other. We don't hear, we don't hear from anybody who doesn't share our point of view, so we don't have the opportunity to take on the point of view of another person, which is one of the functions of empathy. Is that? Right. Well, we don't know what the other people have experienced. Yeah. So um, we haven't been in a common environment and perceived it differently. We've been in different environments that are invisible to each other. And that circumstance makes it exceptionally hard to gain a sense of sympathy or empathy for anyone else. Jaron Lanier is one of the pioneers of virtual reality. And that's given him an interesting take on the origin of the word empathy. It was originally invented by uh, psychologists about a century ago, approximately in anticipation of virtual reality. And this idea that the original the original meaning of the term was that you could imagine yourself in any place in the universe. You could imagine what it would be like to be a mountain or a leaf. And then in the 80s, when we were starting uh, virtual reality, um, I started to use it as a suggestion for a betterment of humankind that using virtual reality maybe we could project ourselves into the shoes of others to more, to get more of a sense of what their experience was, to understand where they were coming from. And there's still artists today trying to use virtuality in that way. But, and, but, you know, the term empathy has entered into the rhetoric of the very companies I'm criticizing, but they're using it. I don't think they're intentionally being cynical, but they're using it in a backwards way where what they mean is that, uh, you can be conditioned 
in accordance with someone else's desires. <laughs> it's, it's, a, it's a very strange and, and twisted uh, evolution of one word that was so well intended so long ago. There's one last point I'd like to make about empathy. And since this is my podcast, I think I'll quote myself. It's from my conversation with Sarah Silverman. We were talking about how empathy needs to be nurtured. We probably all come in with some capacity for it, but it sometimes needs to be built up and it goes away. I've seen it go away in myself. I've seen, I've, I've gone through a period where I actually, I actually try to build up my empathy. <laughs> I work on it. And then I get good at it and get smug. And then I think I have it. And I realize I'm actually thinking, this stupid schmuck, when's he going to stop talking? You know? Yeah. Or is this, if there's, you know, if there's a, a, a any hair of condescension in your empathy. Now you said it. Oh, boy. Yeah. You know, I mean, it's like as a comedian, you know, as a, the, yet the audience can smell any fraudulence, any, yeah. any fakeness, any, you know, even if you're doing a character that's insecure or nervous, <laughs> they have to know there has to be something transcending that tells them, you know, you have this under control and you know what you're doing so that yeah. they can relax. I don't know what my point was. Uh, I wasn't listening. <laughs> After our look back at how empathy has been a major theme on Clear and Vivid, our next bonus episode will explore another topic that keeps surfacing in our shows, the way tribalism has infected our everyday lives, especially our political lives. One of our guests, the social psychologist Jonathan Haidt, summed it up this way. Right now, both sides are are extremely tribal. Both sides are extremely closed-minded. Both sides will attack anyone on their side who shows any nuance. For example, if you're on the left, um, think about the last time a friend of yours said something like, well, you know, I really hate Donald Trump, but I got to admit he was right on points A, B, and C. Like, no, you can't do that. We look at the causes and possible cures for tribalism. Next time on Clear and Vivid. This episode was produced by Graham Shedd with help from our associate producer, Sarah Chase. Our sound engineer is Dan DeZula. Our tech guru is Allison Costin. And our publicist is Sarah Hill. You can subscribe to our podcast for free at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you like to listen. For more details about Clear and Vivid and to sign up for my newsletter, please visit alanalda.com. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at Clear and Vivid. And I'm on Twitter at Alan Alda. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye.